I'm with Macy Day. Hi, Macy. Hi, Serge. So your work centers around uh, sexuality and mindfulness? That's, that's true. Yeah. So what's this about? Okay. You know, a lot of couples are really shocked when they hit that phase in their relationship where sex becomes lackluster, and they often think there's something wrong with me. And what we have found is that all couples reach a point where sexual intensity wanes for a couple of reasons. One is familiarity and the sense that we know each other so well that we can predict every move. So first of all, we normalize that every couple is going to run into this. But what mindfulness does when we bring it into the sexual arena and use it as practice is it helps to cultivate the qualities that keep sex fresh and mysterious. Mm-hmm. Some of the qualities that get lost over time but are there in the early stage of a relationship. Yeah, yeah. So so that in a way it starts as the relationship matures and people notice there's less intensity and um, that's another avenue to recapture that freshness. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, what tends to happen, and this kind of works against the couple, is that when they want to reinvigorate their erotic life, they often reference the sex they're having now against the sex they have in that highly libidinous charged, new, uninhibited phase at the beginning. And the romance phase we're learning is when passion is highest, and a lot of that is biochemical, but it's also that there's certain qualities that are happening when two people come together. There's novelty, there's a quality of chase, there's something forbidden there. And when you have an always available mate, those qualities disappear. Yeah. So so um, what you're doing is normalizing the fact that, you know, you can't go back there again. But not going back there doesn't mean settling for less satisfaction. Exactly. That is so well said. We're not trying to replicate an experience we had in the beginning because, you know, we're sitting here together, and if we did this week after week, we wouldn't be paying attention as closely as we are right now Mm -hmm. because we're coming into contact. And it's true that after we've known someone for a while, it's not the same as the first time. But it doesn't mean that sex then can't continue to be surprising, moving into something that has um, an alive quality where there's mystery and surprise. I mean, in the beginning, every time a couple enters into a sexual experience, it takes them to an unknown destination. But after a while, we get into these routines where we know what turns each other on and we kind of come to expect sex to be somewhat predictable and formulaic, and that's when it's flat. Mindfulness when we bring that into the sexual arena, allows us to enter the encounter fresh mm-hmm. every time. So it's it's permanently novel. It's almost like a first every time. Right, right. So so in a way, not putting mindfulness, in a sense of some people might put mindfulness about something mystical or something that you know feels strange to apply to sex, but you're talking about beginner's mind, that sense of rediscovering and being fresh every time. Yeah, and I'm really glad you're using the word not mystical, because sometimes we think of our approach, passion and presence, as the name of the sexual enrichment process that I've developed for couples, 
it's a consciousness-based model. And sometimes people think they may have a background in Tantra or some other esoteric training that we're talking about transmuting consciousness or manufacturing a particular state. And the way we're working with consciousness and mindfulness in particular is meeting what is here now and bringing our full attention and process to the experience that's unfolding moment to moment. And that can be highly lusty and charged. It can be tender. It could be something that's a little more um, transcendent for a couple. We don't prescribe what kind of sex we're trying to achieve. It's the state we're in when we enter into the experience that we're working with. Right, right. So, so... It's, uh, it's not going to be an escape from reality and actually that a way to embrace reality and from there as a, get a nice starting point. Yes, and again, that's really nice to point out how for when, when couples start to experience low desire, and that's the number one sexual reason that couples go into therapy. Whether they go into therapy or on their own, they try to locate some help. The first thing they tend to run into are what... I call performance-based models. And these are models that are embedded in our cultural ideal to be bigger, better, and more. So we source out erectile enhancers and we learn techniques to have stronger orgasms. Reality may mean there's very little juice that we have access to in this moment, but if we attune to the erotic thread, it's almost like a heartbeat that's within us in each moment and follow it and yield to it, starting with right now, not someplace we think we should be, it again will often take us into unexpected territory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that uh, very strongly that sense that the present moment, the reality, is the exact opposite of the should. Absolutely. And if we get into the should, then uh, we're underperforming already from the beginning. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, part of the performance-based model is this view that we've been steeped in for a long time. I love Masters and Johnsons. I mean, they took us forward in the understanding of the sexual response cycle. But it's also based on this idea that intercourse is what we're working towards. And so to get there, we have to have arousal, then reach plateau, and that we're going to strive to have climax, and then we move into resolution. And so when couples enter into a sexual experience, from the beginning, there can be these concerns of, am I aroused enough? Am I going to have an orgasm? Is this taking too long? Is this too short? As if there's some place we're supposed to be, as opposed to we're just here in this moment in a place of mutual exploration, even play, rather than performance. So, you know, as you're describing this, uh, something I have a visual in my mind, almost a caricature of somebody having a checklist, you know, <laughs> before a NASA launch. Yeah. You know, oh, this check, this check, you know, there's these stages that you have to accomplish before something can happen. And uh, you're describing something that's about being in a state where something happens, but it's it's kind of a black box that you follow yes. as opposed to, uh, you know, following a procedure. Yeah, and I, I'd like to weave in at this point that the way sex is portrayed in the media, I have a colleague, Melissa Grace, and she uses this terminology, the Olympian imperative, where there's this mandate to be a 10 in all areas, including the sexual arena. And when we look at how sex is portrayed, 
it seems like people are having sex all the time, and, and not just sex, but like Cirque du Soleil-worthy sex. And when we compare what's actually happening in the bedroom and our own sexual experiences with those portrayals, the split starts to happen between our intrinsic eroticism, what turns us on, our bodily felt experience, and that checklist of how we're supposed to look, how we're supposed to sound, it's been 10 minutes, we should be at this point. And that whole mindset, from our perspective, only increases fears of inadequacy and sets people up in this loop where they are sometimes even avoidant of sex altogether because it's too uh, anxiety-provoking. Right, but in a way, as you're describing it this way, we're kind of shifting away from sex per se and putting it in that larger framework where yes. what has happened is the attention has shifted from sex to performance and to not being adequate. Yes, exactly. And so in a way, what room can there be for sex from that place? Right, so there's a number of people, Gina Ogden, Barry McCarthy are a couple of well-known sex therapists who have helped broaden the view of what sexual activity is and encouraged us to look less at these goals and that performance model and more at finding fluid pathways to arousal and broadening our notion of what is sexual play so that it fits what's realistic and desirable for the couple. Mm -hmm. And that also supports how our bodies change over time so, yes, we're, we're kind of suggesting a makeover around yeah. what we think of when we consider sex. Right, right. And so your two things is, like uh, you said, a different definition of what sexual is and that sense of fluid pathways as opposed to some kind of a rigid yes. roadmap. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, as we, we, we describe this, uh, in a way I want to just ask what... In what way is it somatic? Great, love that. So um, we are, I keep using the word we. I've developed this program, but I co-facilitate these sexual enrichment retreats for couples with my partner, Halko Weiss, who, as you know, because you've interviewed him, is a co-founder of the Hakomi Institute and the author of the Handbook for Somatic Psychotherapy and I, too, am a somatic psychotherapist. So I think a lot about embodiment. And embodiment to me right now means living from the inside out, like inhabiting ourselves and attuning to the eroticism that is kind of moving through us. It's kind of like we're a vessel for this eroticism that has its own energy, its own expression. And if we are operating in our minds with this picture of what sexuality looks like, we're not attuned to this eroticism, which Joy Davidson describes as a sense, much like hearing or seeing or tasting, that can take us into this place as opposed to, again, we're directing. So the somatic part is we help people become more fully embodied, to listen inside first, to locate and then follow that erotic thread that first exists within them and then to attune to their partner and be in this kind of somatic call and response where they're kind of riding the wave together again of what's unfolding moment to moment but very much checking inside yeah, yeah. very much being connected to what's in here and what's my natural impulse 
So, so in a way, even if I take just that last sentence connected what's inside, there's something very rich. There's a lot of things in it. Uh, you know, because in a way to be connected to what's inside, there has to be a sense of trust that there is something inside. Yes. And yes. then you're describing also a, a method, a way, an approach, an attitude about how to connect with something inside. Yeah. But so, you know, there's both. Is that trust that there's something inside and then how to connect to it? Yeah. So I want to mention the practice as a couple's practice. But I also want to say that this idea of a more fluid view of sexuality also supports a kind of phase we're in socioculturally where there's greater respect for sexual pluralism, the diverse expressions of sexuality. And the more we can attune to our intrinsic eroticism, the more we can find authentic paths to its expression, as opposed to trying to match, again, some view of what sex is supposed to look like. And for many people who've been cut off, who haven't been self-connected in that way, it takes some time, and this is where mindfulness goes hand in hand with embodiment, because mindfulness makes us more sensitive to subtle shifts that are happening physically. It makes our senses more acute. It helps us recognize choice points for erotic expression as opposed to going down the well-edged tracks of our automaticity. Mm -hmm. And when we're on automatic, which happens when we have enough muscular memory and we've started to move into these patterned repertoires that we don't have to be fully attentive to, when we're on automatic, we're not really embodied. So, so, so there's two things in there. Uh, yeah. One part is that um, we have um, I preconceived ideas or ideas enforced by society of what sex is. And so when these ideas are very strong, it's going to be difficult for us to be able to recognize what is inside. And trust. And trust. Word. Yeah. And the other part is that uh, regardless of that, in addition to it, uh, we develop automatic habits and uh, that also is an impediment. So in a way, there's a double whammy. Absolutely, there's a total double whammy. When couples come together, the first thing that glues them together is their curiosity for one another. That makes us very attentive. I really want to know you deeply. I'm very curious. At a certain point, couples feel like they know everything that's to be known about their partner. And at that juncture, they often stop being curious and the other thing that happens, and this again is natural, like we see this in all couples, is when we go from the early stage of a relationship where the hormones that produce lust and desire are elevated and they, they return to baseline levels, the hormones associated with bonding and love and attachment become more dominant. And those kind of invite people to be more affectionate as opposed to more erotic. What's interesting at that time, I'm going to use a term Tammy Nelson came up with, and she's a sex therapist, wrote a wonderful book, Getting the Love You Want. They start to engage in maintenance sex. Sex that's kind of like on your to-do list, like anything else. It's like, it would be good to do, let's get this done. It's not exciting, it's not awesome. It may be pleasurable, couples may have orgasms, but it's more push-button because I know what to do to evoke a particular uh, response in you. And the more we develop these prescribed pathways to arousal, and the less curious we are, the more 
automatic we become. And one, what we know from neuroscience is that automaticity uh, is something that gets stronger over time and it becomes easier to fall into these patterned behaviors. So it takes some consciousness. This is why I'm saying it's a consciousness-based model to be aware that this is a patterned response. Oh, there's some part in me that's afraid to follow this impulse. Oh, this is a choice point I wasn't even aware of because normally those well-edged grooves of automaticity take me down the rabbit hole rather than me seeing all these potential trailheads. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and um, the context is it's actually part of the good thing. So because the, the part of the good thing is, as you said, uh, as the couple gets to know each other better, there's more affection. And so uh, it's just that, you know, affection itself is desirable, but it's just that the other side of the coin of affection is maybe not wanting to take risks or to follow the curiosity. Yes, yes. so two things to that as well. One thing Tammy Nelson likes to say is the old school thinking was if, if the relationship was good, the sex would follow. Mm -hmm. So couples therapists would work on building emotional connection and trust and caring. And what we're finding is, yes, that's important, but too much of that, Nestor Perel has really called attention to this, too much of that we start to de-eroticize our partner. We don't see them so much as a lover. So the current thinking is we have to cultivate simultaneously these two tracks. And one track is the emotional connection, but the other track is the erotic connection. Mm -hmm. And once we're in that emotionally connected place, and you use the word risk-taking, there's a term I use that <laughs> I call it safe sex. When we get to this point that we don't want to rupture the attachment by introducing elements that may be off-putting to our partner. So part of what gets us into these routines is we limit from this pure potential entering into an encounter fresh we start to exile out some of the edgier aspects of our eroticism in service of the security we think we have to trade out. We have to trade out the excitement for the security we get in a committed relationship. So the way back in is to bring those aspects to be more what I call radically naked, mm -hmm. which is emotionally naked with revealing the desires embedded in our erotic imagination. And that's mm -hmm. a path and a process, and that's why passion and presence is for couples, so that they can develop the safety and security on the one hand to use the relationship as a theater upon which they can enact yeah. numerous erotic scenarios and give their erotic voice safe expression in their lovemaking. So, so uh, in a way, um, what it is about is, yeah, you're right, you know, the traditional idea that, uh, um, you know, there is a waning of sexual desire, yeah. validating it, and it comes with affection, it's normal. Uh, yeah, you're right, uh, it's nice to for the two of you as a couple to feel closer and so on, but remember, as you just are good friends, there is something where you're losing out on something. So it's not yes. about avoiding being good friends and strengthening no. yes. that kind of intimacy, but it's also that naked part yeah. of showing the vulnerability uh, and that emotional connection uh, of a different nature than affection. Absolutely, and for couples that are really um, perhaps anxious of 
the kind of self-disclosure and transparency that comes with radical nakedness or even um, enacting some of the erotic scenarios and fantasies that live in their imagination, just beginning to dialogue around this suddenly helps me see that I don't know you as much as I thought I did, Mm -hmm. that there's so much more that's happening inside of you, and that reignites my curiosity and therefore my attraction to you, even if not a lot changes in terms of what we're actually doing in bed. Right, right. And so the interesting part is actually that how it works is as an individual, we know who we are in a way through the reflection we have of other people's eyes. And so there's a possibility of actually expanding on that instead of shrinking because, oh, I can't really show that, I can't really show that. And so it's like the waning of desire is also a waning of who you are. Oh, that's so well said. I love how you said that. And and what locks that in place, sort of the lock for that waning of self and of who we can be, are sometimes implicit contracts that we make with one another to not put either one of us on edge. I mean, I expect you to behave this way because this is what I know you as being. This is what I married. This is what attract. I don't like who you're becoming. You know how you hear those mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. But if we can see that our beingness is also fluid, just like our sexuality is fluid, just like what's unfolding here and now may be very different than what we did together last week and what turned me on last week may not turn me on now but turned me off 10 years ago may be very exciting to me now right so it's that sense of yes let's not lock ourselves into these expectations that we be in a steady state right so so in a way at the same time as there is the bonds of affection this is not a prison where you you can't grow from this is a possibility of actually growing while at the same time having that closeness. And I would go further and say it's not just a possibility, it's built into the design. Mm -hmm. People like David Schnarch say desire problems are people-growing machines. Because if a couple views this kind of phase in their relationship where they've lost interest in desire, and they see that as a crisis or an inevitability, but if instead they see that as a catalyst to come back to life, not just in the sexual arena, but re-inhabiting their fuller self, that's very exciting. And that's, again, why I love doing this as a couple's path or project, Mm -hmm. where we're supporting each other and inviting these parts of ourselves to have fuller expression rather than dampening them down by saying, oh, that scares me. Would you please be the way you were five years ago? Yeah, yeah. So so then that these kinds of problems are just an invitation to say, okay, so, you know, things are changing and there is room to to grow in Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I really, this is where mindfulness can heal mm-hmm. you know, issues, can breathe new life, into a relationship that's fallen a little flat, but also support transformation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. by inviting us to move into a more differentiated, more complex self where there's more aspects of us, again, that can have expression in our world. One of the things that I heard Esther Perel say many years ago is that when people have affairs, they often do so because they want to give expression to a part of themselves that doesn't have play in their regular life. And so one of the techniques that's part of passion and presence is called parts play, where we find a way to let aspects of ourselves that don't show up in the role of mother or husband or parent 
um, or just household manager show up in the bedroom. And again, that makes things more edgy and unpredictable, and it can be scary initially if these are parts of the self that haven't been supported and nurtured recently in the relationship, but ultimately it's what most people seek. Right, right. So so as you're saying that, I have a visual sense yeah. of a person uh, being um, a gathering of parts and that what happens is as the relationship intensifies and there's lots of good things to it, uh, in a way some of the parts that are put forward take so much room that they make very little room and, the, and, and other yes. parts shrink. And so there is an inability to express these parts in the relationship. And either there's a sense of atrophy or dying or a sense of you have to go elsewhere to look for it. Exactly, exactly. So, again, I'm, uh, the idea of this being a couple's process is that we make a contract that we are inviting impulses and a kind of authentic way of being sexually but just in our full expression of our aliveness together uh, and that's a scary practice so because of that some of the um, skills that we teach involve sharing with each other using mindfulness again every practice is mindfulness based to increase safety and reduce reactivity Mm -hmm. Because if you come in and you suddenly tell me, oh, my God, you know, this is a fantasy I've had forever, or from now on I'm going to just be really spontaneous and I've known you as someone who's fairly cautious and deliberate, that's going to scare me and I'm going to have a reaction to that. And I'm not going to be very curious about what this desire is, what's wanting to be integrated or reintegrated into our relationship. But if we've created a context where we are invited to track our internal reactions and report more from the observer than just blurting from this part that may be scared, then we're creating that context where there's enough safety and curiosity and ultimately compassion and what Tammy Nelson calls erotic empathy where we can create enough safety so that each other feels invited to share our deeper selves with our partner. Yeah. So yeah. it's not just a free-for-all, I'm coming in, guess what? You know, this is who I am today. It's really a very deep sharing and a deep disclosure of impulses and desires and agreeing to find ways to integrate those parts of ourselves into our relationship. And the key word is safety. Key word is safety. But safety um, along with that kind of um, commitment to unprotected sex, that right, radical right. nakedness. So maybe maybe the right word might be, uh, you know, because of the bad connotation of safety, we mm -hmm. identify it as a prison there, yes. but maybe a sense of respect, that there is a possibility of respecting each other, uh, that, you know, there is, there are needs, but that there's, you know, each person's needs are going to be respected or each person's fears, and there's not going to be either an intimidation of somebody bringing in their desires as being a tyrant. Absolutely. But not somebody's fears being a tyrant either. Yeah, and one of the practices that we use around mindfulness is exploring aversions. So if there's a lot of activities that we fantasize about that we've exiled from our sexual repertoire and we want to start to bring them in, well, we've exiled them because perhaps earlier in the relationship, we've gotten the direct message that this that thing makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. And normally, when there's something we don't like, 
it's sort of a knee-jerk thing of don't even want to go there, don't want to talk about it, don't want to be curious about it, don't want to explore it. But again, when part of the contract is let's mindfully create an experiment, we call this mindful co-investigation, where I can be the stimulus or trigger and you can study what your aversion is. The intent is not just to say, okay, let's just override our limits and whatever somebody wants is fair game. It might mean that we establish firmer and clearer boundaries, but the exploration has created more intimacy and connection, understanding and awareness. Right. And, and, and as you keep explaining this and going into the territory of going beyond aversion, going beyond fears, you know, it becomes also clearer that mindfulness, as you're talking about it, is a way to ground the exploration because it's about uh, paying attention to bodily sensations and that kind of information yes. as opposed to staying in your head. Yes. Uh, and so that's kind of also related to the safety. Absolutely. I'm a certified Hukomi therapist and trainer, so I come out of that tradition. Passion and presence has imported a lot of the processes of Hakomi experiential psychotherapy and one of the skills that we use is called mindful self-study and that relates to if there's some experience and it could be a physiological experience, a sensation, an impulse, an emotional reaction is showing up that I pause, turn my awareness inside, I linger with my felt experience long enough so that I can um, discover the information embedded in that experience. Mm -hmm. So yes, mindfulness is the core of helping us be more embodied and creating the kind of safety and trust we were naming sometimes gets lost in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And so as you're describing it as that program of self-study experiments for self-study, mm -hmm. there is something about both people being involved in that process, yes. where the process is about each person individually and about sharing it. Yes. So there's also a way in which it's about expanding the room that each person has and expanding the relationship in that way. Absolutely. So mindful self-study is I'm going to take the time to explore what is this trigger. Something happens when we're making love that gets ignited in me that causes me to shut down or stop or to go into some state that's really uncomfortable. Since I'm likely to hit that spot again and again and again, I can choose to override it, I can numb out, I can get resentful and angry, I can avoid sex, or I might say, you know what, I want to look into this, I want to investigate it. Another step, as I just mentioned, is we might set up an experiment intentionally, it's a consensual, co-created experiment, where we just take a little piece of that stimulus that's threatening for the intent of mm -hmm. me learning more about my implicit process around that, making that more explicit. And yeah. then it can be something that we share and we have mutual understanding around, and that can inform how we want to integrate that or organize around that experience when we run into that again. Right, right. And so there's a, even that, as you describe it, is something that's about, um, you know, a sense of respectful negotiation. Yes. But also involves a sense of that uh, awareness of bodily sensations yes. uh, so that you don't go farther than you can. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, so that's, again, about mindfulness being with what is unfolding moment to moment. 
mm-hmm. I might enter a sexual encounter feeling quite alive, quite erotic, and then something shifts in the energy where it's not fully alive. The non-goal approach means we don't effort at that point. Effort at that point. We might pause. We might turn inside and see what's happening. Is there some other impulses showing up, or would it be better to just let this go for now and come back to it later? Conversely, I may enter into an experience not feeling that erotically charged, but um, my partner starts to express some energy, and I attune to that, feel that, and evoke some response in me that takes me into a direction I didn't foresee at the beginning of the encounter. But part of it is, at any point of the way, either person can say, you know, I need to pause and study this, or I'm not quite comfortable, or this isn't feeling authentic to me right now. And that's the beauty of being an engaged, cooperative, erotic team, that we're agreeing to be in this journey together and using sex as the portal for that increased self-awareness and embodiment. And, and as you're describing it very nicely in detail, a moment-by-moment description, is a very nice sense of how it is that two people who know each other a lot, who have connection and affection, are, you know, in, in a mindful quest, uh, can also actually experience a sense of novelty moment-by-moment. Yes. Because things unfold, and you're going to pay attention to what's happening right now instead of going into the automatic route. That's exactly right, Serge. You've said the, the whole point of the model is to work with the inevitability of a loss of desire, to use mindfulness as an antidote to sexual familiarity and automaticity, and to shift from performance to exploration by being increasingly more sensitive to what is here now, that kind of deep listening, that attunement to our own eroticism. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, and as I said earlier, and that intrinsic eroticism is ever-changing and mysterious. So if we're attuning to something that by its nature is variable and it's unknowable, every second it's going to take a new shape and form. And our response to that and our responsiveness to that is going to make every moment a fresh encounter. That's Mm -hmm. the aspiration. Yeah. And the, and the, and that's a shifting of focus and the, in a way, instead of keeping your focus on what's n- old and what you expect is, uh, being able to shift the focus on what is new. Yes. And what is new is the unfolding moment by moment. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Macy. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com. Intrinsic eroticism is ever-changing and mysterious. So if we're attuning to something that by its nature is variable and it's unknowable, every second it's going to take a new shape and form. And our response to that and our responsiveness to that is going to make every moment a fresh encounter. That's mm-hmm. the aspiration. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and, the, and that's a shifting of focus, and the, in a way, instead of keeping your focus on what's n- n- old and what you expect, is uh, being able to shift the focus on what is new. Yes. And what is new is the unfolding moment by moment. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Macy. 
This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.